Welcome to episode 16 of the Princeton Podcast with Mayor Mark Frieda. In this episode, Mark caught up with Christine Symington, the Executive Director of Sustainable Princeton, a team of committed professionals working to make Princeton a model community of sustainability. In addition to describing Sustainable Princeton's projects and partners, Christine shared some specific techniques that Princeton homeowners can use to manage their property more sustainably, as well as discussing with Mark the recently passed gas-powered leaf blower ban. So without any further introduction, let's join our host, Mark Frieda, and his guest, Christine Symington, for episode 16 of the Princeton Podcast. Christine, thank you very much for joining us on our uh, latest edition of the Princeton Podcast. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Mark. It's my pleasure. So let's let's start with, uh, I think, maybe a good logical first question, um, just to help our listeners uh, get a better idea of what, what sustainable Princeton is, just from like a high-level perspective. Can you give us a little detail? Sure. Um, sustainable Princeton is a nonprofit that works exclusively in the town of Princeton. Um, and uh, we focus on ways that we can help the community reduce its greenhouse gas emissions through our built environment, through um, reducing emissions from our transportation sector. Um, and we also are focused on how we can get folks to look at their properties as part of the ecosystem. Um, we went through a strategic planning process last year with our, our board and some key stakeholders and uh, determined that, you know, these are some of the key areas where we really, really can make a difference. So we are, um, have been over the past year, um, and the beginning of this year, sort of honing in on how we will specifically try to address these issues in our town. And we do it in a way where we try to uh, create real collaborative relationships with, with folks, with the municipality, with the school district, with business owners, with residents, um, houses of faith. You know, we see this as um, these are the challenges facing our town in terms of sustainability aren't going to be solved unless we work collectively together on fixing them. There you go. Thank you. So uh, mm -hmm. uh, how about Sustainable Princeton started when? How long have you guys been around? Ah, well, we started as a nonprofit 10 years ago. So 2022 is our 10-year anniversary as a nonprofit. Uh, but it was born out of an effort that the Environmental Commission of, I believe, the former borough, um, uh, underwent a process to develop a sustainability plan, and that resulted in a sustainability coordinator um, who worked out of the planning department. And that um, sort of became apparent that, you know, this was a sustainability is a, an issue that requires a little more um, folks working on it. So the nonprofit was formed in 2020, 2012, and so that makes it our 10-year anniversary. That's great. So happy 10-year anniversary. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, so there's been some recent personnel changes at Sustainable Princeton. So spoiler alert, I am going to say congratulations to you, but do you want to give us a little little detail? What, what's the change? 
Oh, sure. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I started as the executive director on April 1st. I will be taking over from uh, Molly Jones, uh, uh, who was had been the executive director for the past five years. And I'm really excited to you know continue to work on the Strand Foundation that she built for the organization. Um, so it's myself as the executive director. We have Jenny Ludmer, who's our program manager. Josh Perlswag, who is our program coordinator, and uh, we also have a great board and number of volunteers that sort of round out what Sustainable Princeton, the people at Sustainable Princeton. It is a, it is a great group. I mean, I've interacted with everybody, and, and, and I can honestly and sincerely say it is a great group. So we really Thank appreciate you. everything you guys do. So let me, let me ask Likewise. you one or two questions about yourself, right? Because we don't want to make it just all about sustainable Princeton. But did you grow up in in central Jersey or, or where? Ah, well, you said central Jersey as though it's a place. I know that's a, a topic of debate. Yes. Um, I, <laughs> uh, I actually, um, I was born in East Point, Georgia, but uh, grew up mostly in Levittown, Pennsylvania. So 15, 20 minutes across the Delaware uh, in Levittown. Um, so I moved there when I was about five years old, and that's where I grew up. And uh, my family is still there. So they are, they are nearby. That's great. Um, so what, what brought you to, what, how did we get you here? What was the hook that we got to, to get you? <laughs> Uh, well, so I was working in the financial services technology industry um, uh, for about um, 14, 14 years. And um, my last job in that industry was uh, in Midtown Manhattan. And I was commuting to uh, Manhattan from Princeton Junction. And I... It, I had always really wanted to get involved with environmental education and about, uh, um, you know, nine, ten years ago, sustainability became a thing. It became a profession. And um, so I really, I made a decision that that's really what I wanted my career to be. That's what I wanted to get involved with. And so I, I, I quit um, my, my job uh, in Manhattan and just started getting involved in the local sustainability um, groups and um, Google sustainable sustainability in Princeton, found Sustainable Princeton, started volunteering and um, really grew to love the community. And uh, if I said it once, I've said it a hundred times, if there is any town in the United States that could be a, a role model and a leader in sustainability, it's Princeton. We have um, so many passionate people about this topic and so much expertise um, that I felt like this was uh, a community where I could really see myself um, making this not just a place where I lived and loved, but where I would put my life's work. That's great. And, it, and, and you know, look, I got to agree with you about Princeton being a role model. I mean, Princeton... Uh, the name carries a lot of weight. I mean, people, people all over the country do pay attention to what we do here. So, you, you're, you're, you know, when you say role models, not just Princeton, but the things that you personally do for us, for everybody in the community, and that Sustainable Princeton does, you guys are are part of that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, we're, we're we're very grateful to be a part of it, and I. 
we get uh, emails and calls all the time from cities and towns across the country, you know, asking us for advice. Oh, I read you're doing this initiative. Can you tell me how you went about it? Uh, can we borrow some of what you've done? And we are always thrilled to, to take those calls and answer those questions. And we believe in paying it forward um, quite a bit. Um, we, we often rely on other communities that are taking the lead on a sustainability initiative and uh, the community the sustainability community across the country is very generous, always paying it forward. And so we want to make sure that um, we are, um, what we're doing here can be replicated over and over again, because that is how we are going to make, um, it's how we're going to address climate change and some of the, the great sustainability challenges that we are facing globally. Thanks. And it's important for people to understand that what they do locally does make a difference because the more everyone does in, their own little town or city or whatever it is, right? It all adds up. Um, yes. But let me, you know, so recently I know Sustainable Princeton uh, worked on an effort to adopt practices that help protect the health of uh, landscape workers and the local environment. And I think that was called changing the landscape, healthy yards equal healthy people. I think I have that right. Um, mm -hmm. So we're, so two-part question, sorry. <laughs> where do people mm -hmm. find out detail on what they can and cannot do under that effort? And I think the restrictions um, are already in place, right? Have already started. But if you could just sure kind of give 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 us detail on that. Sure. I, first, I really recommend folks go to our website and check out the current projects page, where you can learn about the project. And uh, the project was as much about involving members of our community that are most impacted by a policy or a program in the decision making. So I really encourage folks to go to that page and read more about the process that we went through over the past year with our community partners um, and how we engage the landscaping community in the process of trying to solve some of the issues that were um, being rising to the top in the community as a result of people working from home and being much more con conscious of the noise from gas-powered equipment, in particular gas-powered leaf blowers. Um, so I really encourage people to go read about the process and what we learned and how we went about with the engagement of the landscaping community. Um, so the result of those conversations um, were uh, a, a couple of things, um, actually a few things. Uh, one, when we spoke with the landscaping community, we learned that the municipality's registration requirement was something they supported and that they were hopeful that the town would enforce it and also begin requiring proof of workers' compensation insurance. And so that was one of the changes that um, the Environmental Commission and other of the uh, folks involved with the project recommended to council, which they did pass, was uh, adding that new requirement. And the reason for that is um, it would be so that there was a level playing field amongst the various landscaping companies operating in Princeton, and that those who are trying to pay a fair wage and wanting to take care of their workers, um, if they are paying for and providing workers' compensation insurance, 
um, that that is a demonstration that they are doing that. And that insurance comes at a cost. And so uh, what they were fearful of is if you weren't requiring that and not um, enforcing it, uh, other uh, let's see, less honorable actors would undercut them. And uh, so this was really important uh, need for them. And it was really great to see the town listen and put the, that requirement into place. Um, and then when it came to the use of the gas-powered equipment, we learned in conversations from the owners and the crews is that the way things currently stand with technology, but also with customer expectations, with homeowner expectations of how they want their property managed, the use of gas-powered equipment, specifically leaf blowers, are kind of critical tool. And um, until we change that dynamic, you know, restricting them outright was, was going to be a, a big challenge um, in terms of cost, in terms of customer experience. So there was um, the sort of consensus reached that restricting the use of the leaf blowers that are gas powered in the winter and the summer was okay. They could get by without them. Those are the seasons where you just kind of do some light maintenance, but in the spring and the fall they're they're still kind of an essential tool so that was uh, where it landed was that the um, PEC uh, did recommend to the council that it be a seasonal restriction uh, with some also restrictions on Sundays um, and so the town did vote the council voted for that um, in October and so now it's in effect as a seasonal restriction yeah, you know, I, I have to say, because I was at some of the meetings, the process was incredibly well thought out and very well done. I mean, the process was so inclusive. There was so much reach out to, the, as you said, to the landscaping companies, to the workers for the landscaping companies. Everybody was listened to. Everybody had a chance to have input into this. So it wasn't like we just said, oh, here's a, you know, I think a lot of people took this effort as, oh, you guys are going to ban gas-powered leaf blowers, and that was it. But you have said, you know, we, we looked at the registration requirement. We looked at, do they have insurance? Do they have the... I mean, I just have to compliment everybody involved because this is a process that works so well, and it really is a model for how local government should try to work on being inclusive, listening to people, getting all the information before you come to a conclusion, before you know the answer, and then figure out what the right thing to do is. Because I think in the end, everything that, you, that everyone recommended to the council to act on was very well balanced, very reasonable. And, and it made sense in that there's, there's a, there, it's going to be a progression. Here's where we're starting. And over time, as technology changes and other things, as costs come down to, for purchase of equipment, it's just going to make more sense. So... Anyway, I just had to jump in and say what a great, how, 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 just amazing how well that went. Um, Thank you so much. We, we couldn't have done that inclusive process without the community partners we had working on the project, without uh, Councilwoman Niedergang's support, without the Environmental Commission, without Unidad Latina Naxion helping us reach the workers, without LALDEF, Latin American Legal Education Defense Fund. I'm sure I'm leaving some folks out, but it. It was the strength of those relationships and their trusting in the process that led to 
the amount we were able to engage. Did we do it perfectly? Did we reach every single person? No. Can we do better? Absolutely. Um, but this is a process we hope to build on and do better in the future. Just amazing. Um, Thank you. So what is next now? So I guess your initial grant for this effort has ended. Uh, so what is this Sustainable Princeton doing now to, to carry the work forward? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, one thing that we learned was, you know, this is sort of an entrenched way of managing properties that has led to the use of the equipment. And and, and um, so we want to focus this year and have started a bit of a campaign to extend this Healthy Arts, Healthy People concept and focus on property owners that hire landscapers and um, have them start conversations with their landscapers about alternative techniques that they can employ, which will still allow them to be profitable, um, but do things in a different way, like mulching leaves if you can, um, not blowing them out to the, to the street with leaf blowers, um, using putting the leaves in a leaf corral, um, um, reducing the size of the lawn that needs to, where the grass needs to get cut by planting perhaps some native ground cover or some shrubs or trees uh, and things that the companies can still do to provide a valuable service that is an alternate to what is currently the sort of traditional practice. So we're going to be focused on that this year. Yeah, you know, it, it, it amazes me that, that people will insist that their leaves get raked or whatever to the curb, especially if you're paying a, a service to do that. Because almost any service that you hire, the machines they use to cut the grass are fairly good-sized, powerful machines. They could cut up and mulch those leaves in probably half the time that it takes them to either blow them or rake them to the curb. And environmentally, it's so much better to mulch the leaves. It's just... We don't have to come and pick them up. We don't have to find a place to dump them. It's just, uh, I, I don't know, I guess we're all, well, not all, but I guess some number <laughs> of us are creatures of habit and just figure that's the yeah. way it's always been done. But anyway. I think that's it. I think it's a habit. And you did a great Instagram video last fall of mulching the leaves with your mower. And I'll confess, I, I did it for the first time borrowing my neighbor's mower because I don't have one because uh, I'm a renter. And they just, they disappear instantaneously into the soil like you know if the leaves are dry and brittle you know um do it yeah. <laughs> it just seems like a simple change we hope to get more folks to do that yeah I, I will say to people anybody listening if you rake your own leaves take your battery powered mower like i do and just run them over it's so much easier <laughs> but anyway <laughs> they just disappear okay oh, so anyway um right. so why should property owners care about managing their property more sustainably and and what does sustainable property management, what does that really mean? Yeah, I think it means seeing your property, if you have a yard, as part of the local ecosystem. And um, because it's it's all connected, it's connected to our open spaces, which we're trying to, um, you know, make sure that they're well managed, managed in a way that they provide the benefits that they're there to provide. Um, so sustainable property management is looking at your yard as part of the local ecosystem. Is it supportive and helping um, a biodiversity? Um, is it helping to support natives and reducing the spread of invasives? Is it helping to reduce stormwater runoff? 
um, is it being managed in a way that requires less inputs, less resources, and um, creates connective corridors and connective habitats for some of our more um, impacted and vulnerable species, microorganisms, insects, pollinators, you know, know, that's what sustainable property management is, seeing as part of our local ecosystem. It's amazing how much is involved when you really think about it. But so can you talk a little bit more about the campaign's phrase, healthy yards equal healthy people? I mean, how does health intersect with landscaping practices? Right. And when you think about the equipment that folks are using to manage it, you know, um, particularly if it is is gas powered, um, the noise is can have significant health impacts. And we did the project last year, you know, we had the benefit of uh, Dr. Betsy Marshall, who's from the school, uh, Rucker School of Public Health, help us really sort through all the literature out there to come to uh, an understanding of like, what are the key health risks? And noise is certainly one of them for the workers that are using the equipment. So if you switch to battery powered or use some alternative way to manage it without equipment, you are reducing the likelihood of there being some hearing damage and hearing loss for the workers. Um, so that's one way that uh, healthy yards equals healthy people. Um, but also the exposure to the exhaust from that equipment uh, is harmful. You know, it does create, you know, air pollution. Um, so if you can reduce the exposure to the fine particulates that are in the um, exhaust that is produced when you combust the gasoline, you can improve, you know, folks' health. Um, And if you try those alternative methods of mulching the leaves, you know, you are creating a healthier yard. So this combination of managing your yard to be healthier for the ecosystem is also helping human health. It all ties together. Yes, it does. Uh, So what should homeowners who employ landscapers uh, to manage their property, what should those homeowners do to support these efforts? First, um, make sure that they're registered. Um, you can ask them if they are registered, and, and, and if they're not, you know, try to help them understand the importance of doing that. And um, if they need assistance with registration, understanding if they need workers' compensation insurance and how to get it. The we've been working with the um, small business development um, council at TCNJ. They will provide one-on-one assistance for any landscapers, and they. Um, can provide assistance in English and Spanish. So please make sure that if you hire professional landscapers that they are registered. Um, And ask them about techniques that would reduce the need to use the gas-powered equipment. Show them that there is a demand for this type of service. Um, Ask them to mulch the leaves with the mower. Ask them if they could plant some shrubs, as I mentioned earlier, plant some native trees. Um, convert a portion of the yard to some ground cover that doesn't need to be mowed. It doesn't have to be the entire lawn. Just be around the edges. You know, those were some things we would ask landscaper um, homeowners to start a conversation with the landscaper. So you know, I, I've seen and heard that um, converting a portion of your yard to uh, to a meadow is a technique that that a number of homeowners are are doing these days. Um, what does that entail, and, and why is that a good idea? Yeah, um, some of the things I mentioned before, it helps support biodiversity and creates habitats um, for pollinators. It helps with stormwater retention because those plants have deep roots, and they act as a big sponge. 
Um, so those are some good reasons why you would want to do that. Um, there are lots of resources out there to, to figure out how to do it. You can go to our website, to our yard section, and we'll uh, share, we share some uh, resources there. It's really about finding a suitable location, determining the process by which you're going to prepare the ground. Um, then you determine the type of plants that will do well in that location. Um, you have to have a maintenance plan because you do, you know, it's something that's going to be there year after year after year, and you do have to cut it on a somewhat uh, regular basis. Um, so I would recommend folks who are interested in doing that go to our website and learn a little bit more about how to how to do a meadow in your yard. So you know when you when you said that you know the meadow helps act like a sponge, you know stormwater is a major concern here in, here in Princeton. I mean, people during Ida. Places flooded that never flooded before. So, I mean, people, if people don't know what the future is, that sure should have been a more, you know, a, a, a way overdue wake up call for them. But, um, so what, what can homeowners do to help uh, address these concerns, the stormwater concerns, through management of their property? Yeah, they can reduce impervious cover if they can. Um, they can employ some of the green infrastructure techniques. Green infrastructure is a rain garden. It, it could be a bioswale. It could be um, permeable pavement. Um, you really, it could be rain barrels. Um, you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to slow down the uh, amount of stormwater that runs off your property. You want to slow it down, and by slowing it down, also sort of filter it so that improves local uh, water quality. So I, you could try some of those techniques on your property. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It might be a combination of those things. You kind of have to look at your property and figure out where you might be able to implement some of those solutions. Right. And what people should keep in mind is the more that each of us does, right, it all adds up. It's, it's cumulative. It yep. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the leaf, what some people would call a leaf blower ban, but it's not really a ban. It's just... It's the setting when you can and can't use things. So, I mean, it reduces the, the seasonal and weekly usage of gas-powered lawn equipment also. Uh, how does that impact Princeton's greenhouse? Another one of these multiple, multiple questions in one, sorry. But yeah. um, how is that impacting Princeton's greenhouse uh, gas footprint? And are there other positive impacts of, of, of what that ordinance has done? Yeah, so in terms of Greenhouse gas emissions, if you look at our inventory of what is we are doing, you know, within the confines of the municipality to uh, emit greenhouse gases, uh, gas-powered lawn maintenance equipment, this is, this is about less than 1%. So that's just looking at it from greenhouse gas perspective. Most of our emissions are coming from our built environment. So it's, the, it's our buildings and it's transportation that are really the main contributors um, but it is a source of, of localized air pollution. So by reducing the emissions from the equipment, you are improving local air quality. And, uh, and what was the second? Oh, how's the, the um, I, I think by having a restriction on the usage of the equipment, you are improving local air quality. But you're also reducing the exposure of those emissions to the people that are using it. Yeah, which is which is a good point because, you know, if, for anyone that's ever used, um, a, well, let's say like a, a gas-powered line trimmer, for instance, there's a piece of equipment that the exhaust is right there, you're breathing it in. But even, you know, leaf blowers, lawnmowers, I mean, someone cuts their grass in your block, 
it's amazing how you know, far away that, you know, if that odor is hitting you, you're inhaling the emissions from that piece of machinery. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. anyway. So I understand that Princeton, uh, Sustainable Princeton's offering grants as reimbursement to landscapers registered in Princeton to help uh, reimburse them for the purchase of battery-powered equipment. How does that work? Yeah, so we, during the project, we did come to understand that there is an upfront cost to battery-powered equipment compared to a gas-powered option, and that that upfront cost is a real barrier to adoption. Um, and with the seasonal restriction, you know, the, the, um, the need to use a handheld tool during the summer and the winter, you know, could still be something that was a, a challenge for landscaping crews. So we um, were able to, through the generous donation of a number of individuals, um, raise some funding to create a small fund. We have uh, the ability to give about, about 40 or so. $500 reimbursement for um, a battery-powered uh, piece of equipment. It could be a leaf blower, it could be a line trimmer, it could be a hedge trimmer, it could be a riding mower if they wanted to put it towards that. And that dollar amount should cover the cost of one handheld uh, battery-powered piece of equipment plus a battery plus a charger. Um, so we've got three folks who we've been able to distribute it to so far and we'll be working hard throughout the rest of the year to make sure that companies in our area are able to take advantage of it. You have to have at least 10 customers in Princeton and 10 employees or less. Okay. Um, all right. So let's talk about battery life and power of battery leaf blowers. You know, that's obviously what they're capable of doing versus some of the larger gas powered equipment isn't quite the same. Um, but what, what are your views? What are you seeing? What do you think is going to happen in the future as far as the, the difference in, in the yeah. Yeah. equipment's able to do? No, I think the battery technology is advancing pretty rapidly. So it's not a question of will all of the equipment eventually be battery operated. It's just a question of how fast. So how fast will that cost curve sort of flatten so that uh, you'll see uh, quicker uptake? Um, you know, for, you have to think about the different use cases here. If you're a homeowner and you're just using it, you know, once a week for 45 minutes an hour on the weekend, one battery will probably suffice. If you are a professional crew and you're doing property after property after property, you do need quite a supply of batteries. And that's where the cost is because that's the fuel, right? You're buying all your fuel up front when you buy the battery versus buying the fuel over, you know, the time that you use it. So there is a little bit of an upfront cost and it takes, depending on the type of equipment, a few years for there to be a, a payback. Um, but again, it's not a matter of if, it's when, how fast will those prices come down. Yeah, you know, I can say doing my, my yard, which isn't huge, but the mower's battery powered, the hedge trimmer's battery powered, the line trimmer's battery powered. So it, it depends on how high is the grass, when's the last time mm -hmm. I trim the hedges, are they wet, are they dry, as to how many batteries you use. But you know, you, you buy two or three batteries and for a modest-sized yard like mine, I mean, it, it's, it'd be rare that I'd use all the batteries. So it's worst thing that happens is the one dies, you go pick up the other one, you stick it in there. And they recharge, I mean, literally, like, in 20 minutes. And again, this is for equipment that I would use on yeah. my residential yeah. yard. It's not what yeah. a commercial guy would use. But, yeah. but still, the technology yeah. is advancing, and it's, it's pretty darn easy. 
Yes, all the major manufacturers are in. Toro's in, you know, they're steel, Husqvarna. They are all going to be battery-powered yeah. at some point. It is the future. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it kind of ties into my next question. So, do you think this shift to electric uh, lawn care equipment is is going to take off and be, I guess, happen on both the state and national level over time? I think definitely at the state level, there were two bills introduced um, at the end of last year uh, that were reintroduced in this year's legislative session. There's a, a bill uh, in the Senate that um, my understanding is will probably um, you know evolve, but it seeks to ban the sale of gas-powered equipment, which falls under that definition, I think is what's, what's going to be um, bantied about. Uh, to ban the sale at a certain point in the future, and then subsequent to that, to ban the use. And I think that's a real smart way to go about doing it um, so that you give the existing stock sort of time to turn over and people have invested in that equipment, you know, the opportunity to get, you know, the payback from that. You don't want them to have stranded assets. So that is um, happening at a state level, and I think there's a lot of support for that. And then there's a, a bill that was introduced in the Assembly to find uh, to to designate a funding rebate or reimbursement type of program, and that's what the state of California has done in some of their um, in some of their legislation. So I think those two go hand in hand. Um, I really hope that the at the state level they follow the same process we tr we created here in Princeton in involving those who would be most impacted by this in the decision making process. So whatever the state decides to do, I really hope it's an inclusive process that sort of puts the frontline community at the center of the, of the issue. So um, what are the, so we've talked about a lot of, covered a lot of topics here and it's, you know, we could talk for hours and we're not going to, but anyway, um, yeah. what okay. do you think the three uh, key takeaways are for people listening today? Yeah. Um, your property is part of the ecosystem. Two, start somewhere. Trial, experiment, talk to your landscaper, pick a part of your yard you want to do differently. Just start somewhere, make it simple, and see how you can expand upon it. And three is talk to your neighbors. You know, talk to them about what it is you're trying to do to bring about the change. Uh, they might be able to help. Um, if they see you managing your property differently, maybe they will start to do it. And then the other next door neighbor will start to do it. And that's how you build upon. Uh, a movement. So those are my three things. Those are three good ones. So, all right, final question, final Jeopardy question. What can <laughs> residents do to support sustainable Princeton's efforts? What can we do to help you? Well, you can sign up for our newsletter. Um, go to our website and sign up. We send a newsletter out uh, about once a week. Uh, you can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, you can participate in our Star Neighborhood Program. You can learn more about that on our website. And uh, you can also do donate to us. Uh, if you go to our website, there is a donate link where you can uh, help uh, support our efforts. Right. And it, it is important to point out again, I mean, it, you said it in the beginning, but I want to just emphasize it. You guys are a nonprofit. You do work a lot with the town, but you are not a municipal agency. You are a nonprofit. So people can and should support you. Thank you. Yeah, we are similar to some of the other partner nonprofits that uh, the town works with. But we are an independent 501c3. Well, Christine, thank, thank you very much for being with us today. I think this is uh, it's a great topic, and I really appreciate your time. 
I, it's been my pleasure, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for episode 16 of the Princeton Podcast, produced as a community service by HG Media, providing audio, video, and website design services here in Princeton since 1999. If you enjoyed this episode of the Princeton Podcast, please share it with your friends. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts.